This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 21, Exodus chapters 25 through 28. So, up in the clouds, God speaks and Moshe listens. And God tells Moshe that the Jews need to begin giving a truma, or as Fox renders it, a raised contribution. And then God specifies the different kinds of contributions that, quote, every man whose heart makes him willing can give. Of course, there's gold, silver, bronze, various dyed skins, oils, precious stones, Visa, MasterCard, and Interac. The point of collecting all these contributions is to build God a holy shrine, quote, that I may dwell amidst them. And what follows is a rather detailed list of all the implements needed for the shrine or dwelling with a capital D. A coffer of acacia wood, otherwise known as the Ark of the Covenant, with its cover, winged sphinxes, giant kind of Q-tip shaped carrying poles, fasteners, etc., etc. A table for the bread of the presence, loaves prepared for God. A seven-branch menorah. Various implements, you know, tongs, trays, and all that, all of pure gold. Chapter 26 moves on to discuss the dwelling structure itself, the materials needed for its construction, and the appropriate dimensions. Chapter 27 focuses on probably the most essential element in the dwelling itself, the slaughter site or altar, the materials needed for its construction, the appropriate dimensions, and the necessary implements. Then, the text moves on to discuss the grounds, its dimensions, and enclosures. And before concluding the chapter, God instructs the Jews to bring oil so that a lamp may burn regularly, quote, in the tent of appointment outside the curtain that is over the testimony. This is what we call today the Ner Tamid, the eternal flame. And in that place is where Aharon and his sons, the priests, will arrange it, quote, a law for the ages throughout your generations on the part of the children of Israel. The election of Aaron and his sons to a special religious status is further reinforced in chapter 28 with extensive descriptions of the special vestments and regalia for the kohanim or priests serving God in the dwelling, such as the ephod or vest, its fabric and threads, various stone inlays and gold plates, the breastpiece of judgment, also inlaid with specific stones in a specific arrangement to represent each tribe of Israel, and somehow integrated into that the urim vitumim, as well as a headpiece, a turban, a tunic, also made to specific dimensions and with specific materials. And if you were wondering why each item needed to be made custom, the answer comes in verse 43, quote, that they, the Kohanim, do not bear iniquity and die, a law for the ages for him and for his seed after him. God, it seems, is particularly mindful of occupational safety. So there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. the dwelling or mishkan dominates this episode's portion, I want to focus on one element within this sacred compound, or more specifically, within a sacred garment. I want to focus on the urim vetumim. If you recall, I mentioned the high priest's breastplate of justice, or choshen hamishpat, which, according to most understandings, included a pouch inlaid with 12 precious stones engraved with the names of the 12 tribes. So you see inside this pouch was the urim vetumim, or at least that's what we think. The Urim Vitumim was, for lack of a better word, a device used by the Kohen to consult with God on behalf of the people or on behalf of a ruler. 
Now, there are two other legitimate means for a person to consult with God or God to speak to the people. And it's listed in, in, in the book of Samuel, the first book of Samuel, chapter 28, verse 6. Uh, and it mentions there, the Rimvitumim, dreams and prophecy. Now, the former dreams we covered when talking about Yosef's oneromancy. And the latter prophecy will, will be the subject of many episodes to come when we read about our first batch of prophets in the prophets section. Though it's clear to us how dreams work, maybe. Therapists among us can beg to differ on that. Uh, and it's perhaps less clear to us how prophecy works. It's pretty much totally unclear what's involved with the Urim Vitumim. It's not clear what they look like. It's not clear what they're made of. It's not clear how they are supposed to be used. Now, there are a number of incidents in the Torah and the Nevi'im and the prophets that involve the Urim Vitumim. There's a lot of references to it, even in the Ketuvim. But again, uh, we're not really sure if, in fact, the Urim Vitumim are involved or something that kind of resembles the Urim Vitumim and what they're supposed to do. But there is a word for what the Urim Vitumim does and how it's kind of used, it's called cleromancy. Cleromancy. Noun. A form of divination using sortition, casting of lots, or casting bones or stones, in which an outcome is determined by means that normally would be considered random, such as the rolling of dice, but are sometimes believed to reveal the will of God, or other supernatural entities. Is it surprising that a religious tradition so intolerant, or at least seemingly intolerant, of pagan and polytheistic practices has so many standing stones and sacred trees and various magics integrated into it? What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt. We got better. Anywho, the Urim Vitumim. Cleromancy. So the first instance of, of lot casting takes place in Leviticus chapter 16, where God tells Moshe to tell Aharon to cast lots to decide which goat will be for God and which will be for Azazel. Now, perhaps the Urimitumim were used to suss out the guilty party in an illegal expropriation of spoils in Joshua chapter 7, but we know for sure that in Joshua chapter 18, sort of for sure, that the division of land between seven tribes was done by Lot. Perhaps there was the Urimitumim. We were, again, we're not sure. The same device was used in, in, in the book of Samuel. The first one, numerous times, for example, in chapter 10, lots were cast, or the Urimitumim were used, to determine who would be the king of Israel in a very public ceremony. And perhaps there it was used by Shmuel. We're, again, not sure. In chapter 14, uh, lots were cast to find the man who ate before evening in violation of King Saul's pledge to fast. It turned out to be Yonatan, his son. And here is where we have an interesting turn of a phrase from the Greek translation of verse 41 in that chapter. The underlying Hebrews have been mangled in the received text. Saul says, quote, O Adonai, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If the guilt be in me or in my son Jonathan... O Adonai, God of Israel, give Urim, but if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Tumim. This Greek translation, Thilosis Kealithia, Declaration and Truth, was rendered into the Latin Vulgate as Doctrina et Veritas, Teaching and Truth, which would be a really, really good motto for a teaching institution seeking to impart the truth. Like, perhaps, Harvard.
demonstrate to them our skill. Founded in 1636 by the vote of the Great and General Court of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Harvard was initially called New College or the College at Newtown. It was renamed Harvard College in 1639 after John Harvard, a young English clergyman who bequeathed the college his library of 400 books and 779 pounds sterling, which was about half of his estate. And we thought naming rights was a modern fundraising technique. An early brochure published in 1643 describes the founding of the college as a response to the desire, quote, to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches. And though the college was never affiliated with a particular Christian denomination, many of its early graduates went on to become clergymen in congregational and Unitarian churches throughout New England. Thus, it is no surprise that Harvard University's seal includes three open books upon which the Latin word veritas is spelled. But Yale, Harvard's longstanding rival, adopted a motto more directly influenced by the Torah. In fact, Yale's logo includes the expected Latin, but also the Hebrew words urim vetumim. Now, this odd inclusion of Hebrew in the logo of a colonial ecclesiastical college is actually not that odd in light of colonial era history or the history of ecclesiastical institutions. Christian clergymen across the centuries regarded the Tanakh as the foundation for the New Testament, and its language Hebrew as an essential tool in better understanding Christianity's roots. Many New England Christian ministers took this a step further and forged relationships with the few rabbis who lived in the New World. Perhaps the best documented example of this interfaith interaction is the one between Reverend Ezra Stiles of the Second Congregational Church in Newport, Rhode Island, and Rabbi Chaim Itzchak Karigal, who resided in Newport for six months in the spring and summer of 1773. This friendship made a tremendous impression on Stiles and turned him into a Hebrew scholar. Accounts of Rabbi Karagal dominate Stiles' diary from that period, especially the colorful stories of Karagal's wanderings. Born in Hebron, Palestine in 1733, Karagal became a rabbi at age 17, and at 19 he traveled to Egypt and Turkey. He went on to tour Italy, Austria, Bohemia, Germany, the Netherlands, and England. And between 1761 and 1764, Karigal visited Curaçao, Amsterdam, Germany, and Italy before returning to Chevron. He then visited France and England, Jamaica and Philadelphia, New York, and finally Newport in 1772 and 1773. Stiles doesn't specify why Karigal traveled so often, but some have argued that it was probably to raise funds for the religious Jewish community in Chevron. Again, something we think is a relatively modern invention, but the shaliach running around Collecting money, apparently, has its long-standing tradition. Stiles' diary recounts their many, many conversations. Apparently, they saw each other about 28 times over the six-month period. And uh, Stiles and the rabbi talked about Kabbalistic mysticism, the nature of Hebrew and Arabic languages, the question of which language Moshe wrote in, the relationship between Turks and Jews in Palestine, ancient coins and books, circumcision among Coptic Christians, the coming of the Mashiach, and a whole bunch of other things. I mean, they, they did hang out like 28 times. During this period also, Karigal tutors Stiles intensively in Hebrew, and, and though Stiles had a basic knowledge of the language, by the time Karigal leaves Newport for Barbados, where he is elected rabbi, they're exchanging lengthy letters in Hebrew. They continue to write each other until Karigal dies in 1777. Coincidentally, that year, 1777, Stiles becomes the president of Yale, and a year later, he becomes the first Semitics professor at Yale. 
At his first commencement as president, his address to the audience is in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic. He also requires all incoming freshmen to study Hebrew, a move that even today in many Jewish day schools proves really unpopular amongst many of the students. And under mounting pressure, he eventually modifies this edict, quote, from my first accession to the presidency, I have obliged all the freshmen to study Hebrew. This has proved very disagreeable to a number of the students. This year, I have determined to instruct only those who offer themselves voluntarily. Though enrollment in his Hebrew courses drops dramatically, much like enrollment in Sunday school after the bar mitzvah, the valedictorians of the classes of 1785 and 1792 delivered their orations in Hebrew and delivered them well. Now, keep in mind, that the Hebrew spoken by Stiles and his protégés is not the Hebrew of today. Eliezer ben Yehuda, the legendary you know, reviver of the Hebrew language, only launched his effort to develop and inculcate a modern spoken Hebrew in Palestine. That only happened in the 1880s, almost a century later. But man, oh man, I, I would have loved to hear those, those speeches in what was probably really stilted and archaic biblical Hebrew with its possessive suffixes, its wobbly verb tenses, sentences structured around the verb, subject, object, as opposed to subject, verb, object, and a surprising lack of many commonly used objects or abstract concepts like, I don't know, the telegraph or, or democracy. I probably would have needed some lux et veritas of my own. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 22 on Exodus chapters 29 through 32. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah.